This is Aspen Ideas To Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. On Friday, a judge sentenced former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin to 22 and a half years in prison for the murder of George Floyd. The judge wrote Chauvin abused his position of trust and authority. Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison helped lead the prosecution against Chauvin. He says he's relieved it's over and somewhat surprised at the outcome. History was on Derek Chauvin's side. You know, only seven police officers been convicted of murder since 2005, and uh, we knew what we were up against. Today, Ellison joins Neil Katyal, another leader in the prosecution, to reflect on what it took to break the blue wall of silence. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. The emotionally charged trial of Derek Chauvin was a milestone case in a country whose legal system has been resistant to convict officers for alleged abuses. The blue wall of silence, or informal code among police officers to protect their own, was shattered. Was this a one-off victory or a new beginning for increased accountability in law enforcement? Keith Ellison and Neil Katyal speak with Joshua Johnson, anchor of MSNBC's The Week with Joshua Johnson. Their conversation was held before an audience in Aspen on June 28th, just a few days after Chauvin's sentencing. Here's Johnson. Thank you very much. Hi, everybody. You've got to be more excited than that to be around people. (laughs) In a room together. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having us back at the Aspen Ideas Festival, having us tonight for a conversation that could not be more timely. Delighted to be in a room with another person in person to talk about something that sent a lot of people into the streets during the pandemic, despite the threat of the pandemic, after they saw that video that was taken last Memorial Day. Neil Katyal and the Attorney General of Minnesota, Keith Ellison, were two leaders in the prosecution against Officer Derek Chauvin. It culminated in part on Friday with the sentencing of Officer Chauvin to 22 and a half years in prison, but there are still more legal steps to come after that, including potential appeals. We'll talk about that in just a minute. I'm sure that some of you came armed with questions that you wanted to ask uh, Professor Katyal. He is a professor at Georgetown Law, a partner at Hogan Lavelle's, and also the former uh, acting solicitor general under the Obama administration and also Attorney General Ellison. If you do have questions, we'll try to get to those a little bit later. Attorney General Ellison, Professor Katyal, welcome. It's good to have you here. Yeah, good to be here. First of all, now that the trial is over, how are you? That had to be hell on some days. Just the emotional intensity and the legal scrutiny and the implication of it all, and now it's not over, but a major chapter of it is over. How are you? now that that chapter is over. Attorney General Ellison, let me start with you. I'm good. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, seriously, I'm ready to move forward. I feel energized, and we, we have three more cases. We have more than three more cases. We have more than that. And we have uh, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which still needs to be passed. Uh, we have a lot of state legislation, pending, municipal stuff, a lot of work to be done. And um, I'm up for it. I do want to ask both of you about legislation to come, including one development with Minnesota's efforts to reform policing that came down just a few hours ago. We'll get into that in just a minute. But before I come to you, Professor Katyal, in the days after the verdict, 
when Officer Chauvin, former Officer Chauvin, was, uh, was convicted for murdering George Floyd, what were those first few days like for you? After the press conference was over, after the crowds had left the Hennepin County Courthouse, you go home, you're around your family, your inner circle. What were those first few days like? I don't know, how does it feel to be given a task and complete the task? I mean, that's how I felt. I, w I wasn't particularly happy. I mean, honestly, I spent 16 years defending people who were charged with crimes. And, uh, you know, I know what it's like to sit in Eric Nelson's sh chair. The defense attorney. The defense attorney. And, and I've been in jail cells with people like Derek Chauvin. Uh, and you don't just give legal advice, you give moral advice. They, there's tears, there's upset, you try to talk to families. It's hard. I understood the enormity of the whole situation. And I also understood that even though the Floyd family uh, had a degree of satisfaction, that uh, they, they realized uh, uh, George Perry Floyd's not, not coming back, that his, his, his daughter will not have him to escort her down the aisle one day or wherever. And so, you know, but there was a degree of feeling like, you know, we were able to, 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 to accomplish what we set out to accomplish. And that, that gave me a certain amount of relief. I mean, I wasn't sure what was gonna happen. Um, history was on Derek Chauvin's side. You know, only seven police officers been convicted of murder since 2005. Uh, and uh, we knew what we were up against. I remember Rodney King. I remember Walter Scott in South Carolina. I remember it took five, four years to charge uh, Jason Van Dyke, who killed uh, uh, Laquan McDonald. And the, these are rare events. So I felt like a degree of like, we got it done. Professor Cotillo, what about you? What were those days after the verdict like for you? Um, how did I feel? Well, I have to say it's because of this man. I mean. From the start, when we started this case, uh, the attorney general, first black attorney general of Minnesota, trial lawyer for 16 years. Um, I've had a lot of big cases, Gitmo, the Affordable Care Act, Voting Rights Act, Muslim ban, census, whatever. I've never had a better leader on a case. Um, and I, anyone else would have grandstanded in front of the cameras, would have took roles at the trial just to you know, get, get some FaceTime and so on, he didn't do that. He just gave it to whoever the trial experts were, or whoever, they're the ones who ran the case. And it was as great a performance of lawyering and bo a boss as I've ever seen in you. And that's why our team always had confidence. We knew history was against us. We knew about the seven cops since 2005. We knew that we were seeking murder charges against a cop in a state that doesn't recognize a lot of murder charges um, and has restrictive doctrine. But we had this team built by him and, um, and we, felt, we felt good. Um, after the verdict, I mean, I remember I watched it with my kids and um, I started crying and I gasped. And my kids thought we must have lost or something. And then, no, it was just so emotional. It was just like to see the culmination of the work, the job done. Um, yeah. When you talk about the division of labor and you know, the work that you did and the team did, how did you divide the labor? What was your, did you guys have very specific roles that you delegated to all the attorneys? What was your role in it, for example? Uh, so basically, the attorney general set up a bunch of different committees. 
So there was a medical committee that, because the medical stuff was really important. You might remember the testimony of Dr. Tobin, for example. That was found by the medical committee and some great lawyers who never appeared on camera, right. never in the trial, but like Lola Velasquez, people like that who were just magnificent. Um, other people did, you know, like the documents and the deposition, like the, the witness preparation and stuff like that. We handled the appeal issues and kind of the legal geek stuff, like, you know, all the different arguments about what can you charge, what do the jury instructions look like, and the like. And the cool thing was this was taking place during COVID. We weren't together, even though the folks in Minnesota weren't together. They were in separate places. But we had a meeting, like, during the trial, we had a meeting every day at the, end of, at, the end of, at the end of court, and we'd go through the entire day, plan for the next day, and just again, to give you a sense of what kind of team, what kind of leadership he brought to the team, once he said, I'm gonna bring you a special guest. So we finished the trial, it was a very hard day at trial. Eric Garner's mom comes on and joins us, the prosecutors. And she tells us, you know, Thank you for bringing this prosecution, because I never got my day in court. Mm -hmm. That's right. With regards to your role, Attorney General Ellison, your job is both legal and political in some ways, yeah. statewide official. Right. So you had to be thinking about the public implications of what all of this meant, of what the prosecution was going to be like, of the scrutiny, of the crowds that were going to show up outside the Hennepin County Courthouse in downtown Minneapolis. And my house. And your house, right. right. How did you... Or were you even able to prepare for just the public spectacle of it all and the international weight of it all, of what this meant to people? So whenever you get a case like this one, and Neil's done a lot of big cases, you do not worry about all that. You deal with it, but you don't worry about it. You just deal with it. So we had one of the teams we had was a, was a media team. Not that we were projecting out, because we weren't, you didn't hear much from us during the trial. That was on purpose. But we did want to monitor what was coming in and what was being said. So we were able to download on that. So we were able to see how it was going. One of the things I needed to do uh, is also make sure the governor knew what was going on. Because, you know, he runs, you know, we had, we had civil unrest. You know, he wanted to know, you know, do I need to call the National Guard? You know, and, and, and so we were in touch with him in touch with the Department of Public Safety Commissioner, and uh, just, sort of, just sort of keeping, I thought one of my main jobs was to keep everybody focused on, keep the main thing the main thing, and then the other thing was to, to I try to I insulate them from all of that crazy stuff going on, which is impossible to do, but um, that's what I saw as one of my main jobs. And then, and then let them know, here's what they're saying, here's how we're doing in social media, how's we're doing on real media. And we, we did all that stuff um, well before the trial, but we certainly did it every day during trial. And actually, Neil, uh, he says, well, hey, we're, we're inviting guests to, to, to class, right? I'm like, absolutely. <laughs> he gets uh, Eric Holder the next day. <laughs> so so we, we started doing this thing, man, where, we, where people were, they were pulling for us. They, were, they, we, they wanted us to do well, and uh, we were happy to receive the support. We're going to get to some of your questions in just a second. Does anybody have a question that you have that's on, my, on your mind that you might want to? Okay, one over here. Any others? All right, one or two. We'll get to some of your questions in a minute, and we'll move the mics around in just a second. We did tell some of the viewers of the week that we were going to be speaking to you, and one of our viewers asked a question that I think 
Many of us have. Nathan asked, why do you think the prosecution of Chauvin succeeded where many others have failed? Do you think the trial is an example prosecutors should emulate? And do you think some past prosecutors have failed in their duty to properly try cops who have killed wrongly? Professor Katyal, let me start with you. Why do you think this succeeded where others failed? And is there something here that other prosecutors should emulate? Yeah, I mean, there's a hope to replicate it, but it's really hard to replicate it. Honestly, you just don't have a boss who was a trial lawyer for 16 years and can get into the weeds on a witness or something like that the way he could. You had an incredible far-flung team of people, including maybe the best trial lawyer I'd ever seen in Jerry Blackwell. Um, you had just an enormous amount of resources. And then I'd say two other things. One, the video. I mean, Darnella Frazier, I mean, that changed everything. And two, the Floyd family. Yep. Um, the dignity of this family going through that, the strength, the resolve. I mean, I found it so hard to watch that video the first time, the 10th time, the 30th time. They had to watch it in court hundreds of times. Um, I don't know how you do that. And I do think that it gave all of us a certain amount of resolve and steel. Um, they, they, we watched their example and we, we learned accordingly. Um, but these things are really resource intensive, so I don't think prosecution's the strategy, and so hopefully we can talk about other strategies later. Mr. Ellison, what about you? Yeah, well, I do, I do think that one of the things that we must resolve to do in our country is to prosecute crime, whether or not a person is wearing a badge or not. And we've got we to gotta just say we're going to do this and put our shoulder into it, um, we had some good breaks, the video, um, but one of the things that I think we, we did that really helped is that we went and we asked Minneapolis Police Department leaders to come and to testify. And uh, I don't know if every department would have done that. I can tell you that Rondo, Madeira Arredondo, the chief of police, he said, I can't, I can't let this go. I gotta be heard. And then the longest serving police officer in the Minneapolis Police Department, Richard Zimmerman, uh, he came. I mean, you know, it really was kind of our good fortune to have, you know, the acting Solicitor General of the United States to be able to churn out the best research we could possibly get, research every issue, down to the jury instructions. Some of y'all know that when the, 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 we, we work over the jury instructions pretty hard, and uh, there were things that Neil and a young fellow named Sandeep uh, really grinded on. Man, they just really worked hard. And we got excellent instructions so that when the judge told the jury how to apply the law, it made sense, it fit the facts, and it worked. So, but, but I do think that the, it starts with the will. You gotta have the will to do it. What, what explains not bringing uh, charges against um, Jason Van Dyke for four years? What explains, um, you know, uh, putting up a, a half-hearted case with um, Walter Scott? Well, but the answer to that might be partly in what you said with regards to Chief Arredondo, the chief of Minneapolis yeah. Police Department. I think from the beginning, and I don't know if anybody else felt this way, those of you who watched the trial closely, from the very beginning of the testimony when the dispatcher testified right. and said she was listening to the account of what happened and she was like, I'm going to have to snitch on this. This doesn't smell right to me. And when she escalated it 
and then other officers testified, and then the chief said, depart from me, I know ye not, that's when I knew the case was over. But, but, but I don't think anybody was counting on the thin blue line to break well, against Derek Chauvin. Well, good point. And let me just illustrate why they might not believe it would. Does anybody ever heard of a woman named Carriel Horn? Anybody heard this name before? Carriel Horn. Carriel Horn is a Buffalo police officer. And she, about 15 years ago, went to a routine thing with her and her partner. And her partner uh, is bashing the hell out of a, a suspect. And she intervenes to stop him, say, hey, man, he, he's good. We got him. He's not resisting. He punches her in the face back and then goes and says she interfered with a lawful arrest and she ends up getting fired. And it was only because some professors at Harvard pick up her case that she even got her pension restored. Mm -hmm. Carrie L. Horn, if you're a Googler or whatever you use, look her up. It's, it's why officers won't step out. Another example, I can't remember the guy's name, but there was a, uh, the wife says, my husband is suicidal. He has a gun. There are no bullets in it. I want the police to know that. He's suicidal. There are no bullets. He wants you to shoot him. And so this officer gets the report, arrives on the scene, and says, look, I know, you know, I know what your situation is, and skillfully gets the guy to put the gun down. Two other officers come up right behind him, uh, as he's putting the gun down and they shoot him in the head and they kill him. Now, now here's what happens next. The officer who didn't shoot him is charged, is accused of endangering all three of them and is fired, sues the department for 100 and gets about 175K, which is no money if you're unemployed for three or four years. So when 14, and this is important for everybody to pay attention to, 14 Minneapolis police officers wrote an open letter saying, we condemn what Chauvin did. We do not, this is not us, we don't believe in this. They did something really courageous because they, they, they could be ostracized on that force. And you should know that there are a lot of officers who hate this, they're sick of it, they don't like it, but, they, but the real fear is that they're gonna be punished if they say something in favor of human rights. So, Professor, what do you think made the difference there? Is there something in this case in Minneapolis that feels replicable in other police departments, or is this something unique to this department under this cir these circumstances at this time? I think the prosecution helped a lot. So if you think about what happened just the night of May 25th, there was an incident. You don't have to go to Buffalo to, to figure this out. There was an incident report that was written that night that basically is the most sanitized. You, 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 it was, it's almost like a man died in the street and, you know, no description of the violence. In they literally happened. said George Floyd died in a medical emergency while in police custody. Yeah. Back to you. Yeah. I mean, it's un unbelievable that that's what, you know, a government, you know, report would say about this incident. And thank God for the video. But I think what's replicable is that this prosecution, and I remember this from my very first conversation with the Attorney General when we were thinking about my, my team joining, I, you know, I wanted to make sure, is this going to be some anti-police prosecution? Not at all. Not at all. This is a pro-police prosecution. Police hate this stuff. It gives them a terrible, terrible name. And so we want to respect what cops do. We want to respect the fact that they have a lot of bravery. But at the same time, when you have something like this, you don't flinch, Does the badge doesn't insulate you.
capitalism has accelerated many of the world's problems, from climate change to economic exclusion. So what role can and should it play in accelerating solutions? Hala Thomasdottir of the B Team offers up a new spin on capitalism, one driven not only by short-term profit, but also by the well-being of people and the planet. Many businesses are doing great things, and many business leaders know they need to do more, but don't know how. And so telling the stories of those who've gone before them and not necessarily found all the answers, but rumbled with the tough challenges and questions we are facing, we need to be sharing stories of what is working and what isn't working. She's working within the profit-driven system from the top down on what she calls radical collaboration between the private sector, civil society, and governments. Hear about her ideas in the podcast Solvers. It's a podcast created by the Skoll Foundation in partnership with Aspen Ideas that features stories of social innovators making change in their communities and the world. Find the podcast on your favorite podcast player. One of the things that came up repeatedly, particularly in the prosecution, listening to Jerry Blackwell, listening to Steve Schlisher. Schlisher, thank you, in a number of parts of their statements, including I think the opening and closing, is they, they tried to really build the case on the facts and not about making a statement, making a point. You know, it wasn't a Black Lives Matter prosecution. It was, these are the facts, this is the law, you should find him guilty. You had to feel the pressure at some point, or not the pressure, the desire from the public to throw the damn book at Derek Chauvin. I think there are a lot of people who looked at it and said 22 and a half years is more than the minimum. It's not what you asked for. But if this is so reprehensible for police, throw the book at him and send a message. How do you reflect on the sentence today? Are you satisfied? Satisfied is, does not, is, doesn't capture what's going on with me. I'll, I'll tell you this, um, until we end excessive force by state actors against a discrete and insular group of people who are descendants of slaves in this country, I'm not gonna be satisfied, right? But, was I, but, I, but at the same time, I thought that the sentence, uh, 10 years more than the, than the guideline sentence, was meaningful and important, uh, and, um, and, and that's how I feel about it. I mean, look, uh, I, I told our team, we're not gonna appeal this because, um, you know, th there, there needs to be some closure. And uh, he's not, he will not, he will be in his 70s before he's, he walks out. And, and so, um, and then he's dealing with some federal stuff and they're tougher than the state. You know, you do 85% of federal time and you do 67% of state time. So if he got the same sentence of 22 and a half years, he'd do more time on the feds. He'll, he'll leave, he'll leave uh, his state time and still be doing federal time. So this is meaningful and important and, and, I, don't, and I don't think we should easily minimize it. I will say this about the judge's sentencing order and I respect the judge and I, I like the judge. I, I thought that um, I thought that the I thought that the the, the sentence comported with with what a Hennepin County judge would do, um, and so I'm so I'm still haven't said I'm satisfied, 
but I'm not going to raise sand about it. Professor Katyal, what about those federal charges that are still pending? Does that raise the possibility that Derek Chauvin would spend more prison time and that that might send a different kind of a message in terms of what law enforcement officers face if they flout the law, if they flout just standards of decency when dealing with suspects? Yeah, so, I mean, I just know what I'm reading in the papers that there is some talk of, you know, of federal charges and, and you know, and, and so on. If that it does happen, if there's a resolution, you know, if, if he's convicted and has to serve a long amount of time there, it may mean he won't appeal his Minnesota case. Right. Um, and that might create the closure that the Attorney General is talking about. If, by contrast, he appeals, you know, then that is going to undermine the closure that the attorney general is talking right. about. And it may mean that reopens sentencing, you know, on our side. Who knows? Those are all things that you have to, you know, evaluate uh, over time. The one thing I do think, though, is that criminal prosecution is only one tool in the toolkit. It's a great tool, an important tool. But if you really want to prevent this, you got to do more. So here's one very concrete thing. Look at Newark, New Jersey. In 2020, the cops in Newark didn't fire a single bullet. That's right. Not one bullet fired by cops in an entire year. They also didn't settle any police brutality cases uh, in 2020 either. Now, where is that coming from? You know, Newark doesn't have, you know, let's be frank, it's not Aspen, doesn't have that image. Um, what did Newark do? Well, in 2016, with the Obama administration, they entered into a consent decree with the Justice Department that required them to train their cops on use of force, on stop and frisk, on unconscious bias, on a whole bunch of things. That paid off. Now, of course, Jeff Sessions, he tried to get rid of consent decrees. I mean, he literally said, quote, consent decrees are an end run around the democratic process and they undermine respect for police officers. The data is totally to the contrary. You want respected police officers? Newark, where they're not shooting anyone, is a good place to start. So, um, so I think consent decrees, which are now being revitalized by the Justice Department, really, really important tool. Uh, if I may add, yes. in the, in the um, George Floyd Justice of Policing Act would give state AGs pattern and practice authority in cases where the feds um, elect not to do it. So you'd have kind of, just like the uh, CFPB, the state or federal government can enforce the consumer law, it would be the same way there too. So, it would, it's a tremendous tool, and I think everything Neil said is right. I know you had your, your hand up, sir. Do you, do, I didn't ask your question for you. Did you still have your question? All right, let me, let's, let's walk a microphone over to you. While it's on the way, would you, could you just use that term pattern and practice? That's one of right. those criteria in terms of whether or not police departments end up, under, end up under federal orders like consent decrees. They look at the pattern and practice there, right? Right. So the federal, back in, I think, the 1994 crime bill, you've heard a lot, heard a lot about that over the years. One of the things in there is it gave the federal government the authority to say, if you have a department that's sort of had a lot of problems uh, and has a pattern of discrimination, discriminatory stops, discriminatory use of force, discriminatory issuance of tickets, uh, things like that, that they can uh, enter, in, and if it's provable or if they admit to it, uh, that the federal government can enter into an agreement with the municipality and that over the course of time there can be this cooperative arrangement where they have to take corrective action. So you're talking about states being able to have that kind states of States will be able to do it uh, as along with the federal government. Um, and, it's, and it wouldn't, won't work everywhere, but like in the case that Neil mentioned, where Obama does it, Trump won't, 
Then, like if you take the state of Illinois, there was a, the, the, we would, when we got sessions, they said we're done with the pattern and practice case in Chicago. And so Lisa Madigan, who was a former AG in Illinois, now it's Kwame Raul, they had to go figure out based on some inherent authority in the attorney general, which really wasn't in statute anywhere, uh, to have pattern and practice, which was of dubious legality. I mean, I'm not saying, it, it hasn't been tested. I'm not saying yeah. it's not lawful. No, if they challenged it in court, it would be a big deal. So putting it in statute, in the federal statute, would be meaningful and important. Let's get to a few of your questions. Hi, sir. Thank you. Um, hopefully this will not be a convoluted question, but if you think about a Venn diagram and the reasons why, I know that we have a bit of a macro lens on the, on the George Floyd trial, death, et cetera. Um, you have style of policing, you have racism that may be institutionalized or just personal that the officer may have. You may have also increased police powers like you know, Supreme Court decisions like Atwater versus Lago Vista, which now can take a very minor infraction and turn it into an actual arrest. So then you've got illegal search and seizure and things of that nature. So in general, in the United States, what is your personal opinion on why so many African-Americans are dying at the hands of police? A combination of what are these circles of this Venn diagram where they intersect, in your opinion? Is it style of policing? Is it lack of you know, what, the, what Newark did? Is it too many almost rights that police have? That's, that's I, I not a convoluted question at all. Okay. So, I think so, depending on, on what African-American you ask, the answer to that could be real simple. But I would so, be interested to hear. So, I mean, really, like the answer could feel like, oh, I know exactly why this is happening. But so let, what do you think? Just um, consider the fact that our country held people in, in voluntary servitude for 250 years. Uh, generations were born, lived their whole life, and died. And if they ran away, they'd be guilty of theft of themselves. And that was an institution, and, and, and it was enforced with torture, and it was enforced with brutality, and they could sell your children, and they did. Now that happened here. And for 100 years after that, we had legalized government-sanctioned second-class citizenship. You can't sit here, you can't live there, you can't drive there. You, the FHA, if the FHA said, if you don't have a racially restrictive covenant in the deed of this house, we will not insure it. FHA, the Federal Housing Administration. Right, and so that's our country. This happened for 60 years. Why don't black people own homes? It's not because black people don't want to own homes. It's because the federal government said you may not, you people may not own homes, just like you may not sit in the front of the bus, just like all that. And then since then, since about 1965, within the memory of people in this room, we've had nothing but in, in, racialized disparities in every aspect of American life every single aspect of American life. So you think about that for a moment. Now, our country says we're not gonna, we're gonna over-incarcerate you, we're not gonna let you have a house, we're gonna undereducate you, we're gonna underemploy you, we're not gonna let you in our house. And if you seem to not like it and don't wanna just peacefully submit to what we have relegated you to, yeah. the police will show up and beat the hell out of you or kill you if you don't like it. That's what your neighbors live through who are black. Think about that. Just think about that, please. Professor, would you respond to that? And then I want to close with a, a forward-looking question I, about the law. I, I, I can never improve on that. Um, but what I will say is just to connect the Attorney General's point to what Randy Weingarten was saying before. 
It's also about education and forgetting all of these incidents in our schools. You know, I, I went to a great law school. I took criminal law. There wasn't a word about race in the entire course. There's nothing about anything that we've been talking about here in a criminal law class, which is, of course, has to be front and center about that. So I do feel like, you know, that piece is there, and that's why you have these doctrines like the Supreme Court's Qualified Immunity Doctrine, which the gentleman was questioning is getting at, a doctrine that says, unless a right is very clearly established, you can't sue the cops. I literally had a case in which the cops went and stole $30,000 of stuff from someone's apartment while they were searching it, and they sued to get it back, and they said, well, it's not clearly established that theft by cops is against the law qualified immunity. It's insane. The Supreme Court has been asked to get rid of it, and they won't. So the George Floyd Act would get rid of qualified immunity, and we need it. I was just going to ask you about that. By way of wrapping up our conversation, I want to ask the two of you about some of the legislation that's on the table and whether that might move us a bit forward. You mentioned the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which would get rid of qualified immunity, ban chokeholds. There is a compromise measure that's working through Congress. Details are slim, but it is different from the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Who knows what Congress is gonna do in the next few months or whether Congress is gonna be able to do anything. And I wonder what your sense is of whether there are solutions at the federal level that communities of color should take some comfort in that things are about to get better or that they're about to spiral down the same legislative drain as everything else. Let me cede my time to the Attorney General because he just wrote a great piece in the Washington well, no, Post. Well, I, I have a different question this. for you oh. about Minnesota. That's okay. A, yeah. Well, sure, I think it is possible, even in a climate in which you know Republicans and Democrats can't even agree on the sky being blue. But this is like so fundamentally a test about what America is at this moment. If we can't pass the George Floyd Act, I think it says something really profoundly sad about our nation and that we haven't gotten much past some of those events that the Attorney General was talking about. And for you, before we go, I think a lot of what happened with the Derek Chauvin case and with George Floyd's murder kind of obliterated the stereotype of Minnesota nice. That kind of went away for a lot of people, that there were these things under the surface that people of color have been shouting about forever and ever that no one wanted to talk about until they watched it raw in real time. And so now the state of Minnesota is talking about this in a different way. There's a public safety budget bill that's pending right now in St. Paul. It's a deal that was struck for police reform, a higher standard for granting no-knock warrants, limiting how prosecutors use jailhouse informants, barring corrections officers from chokeholds and prone restraints. Doesn't include faster release of body camera video necessarily, and the Minnesota House is going to debate that bill tomorrow. A few hours ago, Governor Tim Walz announced that he is signing an executive order to put more money into community violence prevention grants, to increase transparency and accountability of the board that oversees law enforcement officers in Minnesota, it's called the Post Board, and also to change the way that the state releases video footage from state law enforcement agencies, the State Patrol, the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension, the Department of Natural Resources, et cetera. So there are measures right now pending in St. Paul, and the budget runs out this week. So they have to do something about this soon. Before we go, all of these bills feel a lot like what lawmakers have said we got to get done in the past and never did. And I constantly hear from viewers who are like, yeah, that's nice, but it's never going to be enough. It's not going to be enough. They're never going to give it to us. They're always going to, it's going to be a loophole. Somewhere in the fine print, they're going to let somebody get away with something. How confident are you that now, 
with these executive orders, with this public safety budget bill, that Minnesota is going to turn the corner so that what happened in that corner with George Floyd can be history and not the present subtext of how people live in the Twin Cities. Hey, look, I, I love the state of Minnesota. I live there. My children grow up there. It's a great place. But we have some of the worst racial disparities in education in the whole country. We have the, the worst gap between home ownership between blacks and whites in the country. And we, those, those proud, I mean, yeah, yes, we're proud of Paul Wellstone, we're proud of uh, Hubert H. Humphrey and, and Walter Mondale. But these other problems we've got to fix and they're in front of us to fix. There's no guarantees. All you do is get up in the morning and do the best you can to push justice forward as far as you can. And that's all I got. I'm telling people about this bill because I spent all afternoon talking to my ex-colleagues about this bill and my advice to them is to pass it. Of course it doesn't have everything you want, but put, that, put the winnings in your pocket and get back at it next year. And, um, and I'm sorry, we should, we should also note that in Minnesota, the House is democratically controlled, the Senate the, is Republican right, controlled. Right, so if, it were, if, we had, if we had all Dems, we would do a lot, go a lot further. But the point is, we have what we have, and re Republicans are passing some things that are good. So what are we gonna say, no, because we can't get everything? You know, John Boehner, remember him? Yeah. When he, he had his H.R. Uh, 1 when they took the majority, and he said if they won't take it, the whole loaf will give it one slice at a time. And you better believe, and Randy knows this, before too long, they had cut that budget way back, and it almost looks like they got the whole loaf, but it took a while. Look, here's the thing. Y'all just had John Lewis up here. In 64, we passed a... Civil Rights Act, a lot of activists who bled and died for that Civil Rights Act were mad because like, well, it doesn't have voting, it doesn't have housing. But in 65, we got voting, and in 68, we got housing. So you just gotta keep on going, and you, we have to have the same commitment as those people who stopped and shouted for Derek Chauvin to get off George Floyd that fateful day on May 25th. Those people, three 17-year-old girls, including Darnella Frazier, um, a nine-year-old girl, a 62-year-old guy who only went to the third grade, an MMA fighter, so tough that he fights in the ring, but when he got on the stand was in tears over what he had to witness. Those people, none of them knew George Floyd. None of them knew George Floyd. You didn't know Jerry and Steve Slisher and all those. Our team came together, strangers. We as Americans have to come together and we have got to say, the other side of this mountain is better. And we gotta fight for it, we gotta get all we can and keep fighting until we get all we need. Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison and Georgetown Law Professor Neil Katyal. Thank you, gentlemen. Keith Ellison is the Attorney General for the state of Minnesota. He's also a former congressman who served Minnesota's 5th Congressional District from 2007 to 2019. Neil Katyal is a professor of law at Georgetown and a partner at Hogan Levels. He previously served as U.S. Acting Solicitor General. Their conversation was held June 28th at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's discussion was programmed by the Aspen Ideas Festival team, which includes Kitty Boone, Keeleen Bretman, Katie Cassetta, Kristen Cromer, Libby Franklin, Ava Hartman, John Melgard, Azalea Milan, Marcy Krivenin, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.